we saw this kind of emerging opportunity to to tokenize private equities. Yeah. So in October of 2017, I got together with um, got our team around this idea at our external law firm, Lawenstein Sandler and Deloitte. And we created this entity in the Cayman Islands, a subsidiary of Series X, which is my holding company. Initially, it was called Certifiable Technology. Uh, mm -hmm. And that could be like certifiably insane or it could be <laughs> like, oh, you know, certified identity, you know, for employees and associates, you know, whatever you want to say. Welcome to the Benzinga Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Tony Noto. My guest today is Dave Hendricks, founder and CEO of Vertalo. My desk is flooded with copy pertaining to crypto, DeFi, NFTs every day, especially today, uh, considering the, the latest news about the so-called crackdown by yeah. the SEC. But uh, for those who are unfamiliar with Vertalo, why don't you tell them a little bit about it? I just signed up for your newsletter. It's one of the more um, highly ranked newsletters in the security space. Yeah. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about it, how it came to be and, and what it's about. Yeah, so I started this with, uh, with a couple of co-founders, uh, William Baxter, my CTO co-founder, and Gautam Gudral, my general counsel co-founder. Uh, we started it in 2016. I was living in London. Um, we, uh, we went on a kind of a think and walk tour around Europe, ended up in Berlin, ended up on a barge on the River Spree. Uh, I had no idea that you could spend four hours uh, drinking beer and eating bratwurst uh, and, and never go past the same thing twice on okay. the Berlin. That gave us a lot of opportunity. We couldn't escape each other. And, and so, you know, we made some decisions about, you know, hey, we're, um, we're, uh, we're, we're uh, we, we need to do something new. And so initially we started working on a problem using Ethereum smart contracts to, okay. uh, for the purposes of, of human capital due diligence. Uh, basically, it was a, it was a, uh, a graph uh, where organizations could connect with uh, their associates, people that worked with and for them, and that would be validated on chain. And uh, I, I uh, left the company that I co-founded, sold some of my shares, uh, and in two, early 2017, moved to Austin, Texas, which, uh, which, is, which is a great place if you your listeners haven't been here, feel free to come. Um, and um, so my first, my, my previous company was our first client and, uh, and, you know, we kind of did a pilot with them. And in, in September of 2017, I saw everybody raising money using non-dilutive ICOs. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. You mean you don't have to sell any equity and you can raise a whole bunch of money? <laughs> Sounds like a good idea to me. So I wrote a white paper and a technical yellow paper. And I took that to Gautam, my general counsel. And he kind of squinted at it. He took it to our external counsel at Lonestein Sandler. And they came back to me and they said, sorry, Dave, no ICO for you. And so, um, you know, we, had, we knew a lot about securities. And we saw this kind of emerging opportunity to, to tokenize private equities. Yeah. So in October of 2017, I got together with um, got our team around this idea at our external law firm, Lawenstein Sandler and Deloitte. 
And we created this entity in the Cayman Islands, a subsidiary of Series X, which is my holding company. Initially, it was called certifiable technology. Uh, mm. and that could be like certifiably insane, or it could be <laughs> like, oh, you know, certified identity, you know, for employees and associates, you know, whatever you want to say. Well, yeah. I didn't love that. First of all, the URL was like way too long. It was like, ah, it was like 20 work, 20 letter thing. And I was yeah, like, too long. Brevity is key. And that's yeah, yeah, brevity is key. And so I started hunting around for a better name. And I was working with this firm in Fort Worth called the Star Conspiracy. Uh, they're, they're in HR technology and all that stuff, which is kind of the sector we were in at the time. And, um, and they just had a bunch of names lying around and with, uh, with like Twitter handles and, and URLs and registrations. And they had this thing called Vertalo or Vertalo or something else like Vertalo. I'm like, <laughs> this is it. It's perfect. It doesn't mean anything. I'm right. like, I'm like, it doesn't, it doesn't connote because everything I learned from branding is that you have to be careful when you brand something. Like you've got a great name, Benzinga. Like no one, what does Benzinga mean? It doesn't, you know. <laughs> you know it means. It, I hope it means wealth for our listeners. There you go. <laughs> knowledge. Wealth okay. Not wealth knowledge, right? Yeah. So a, a wealth of knowledge is what Benzinga means. Okay. Well, Vertalo, uh, unlike a lot of, uh, you know, companies in the, so uh, the, the distributed ledger or blockchain space, it doesn't have the word block and it doesn't have the word chain in it. Hmm. And again, we work in the securities context and we, you know, tokenize securities. We don't have to tokenize them. We also can just do digital securities. They don't all have to be tokenized on our platform. And we can tokenize it anytime, but I don't have the word security in it. I don't have the word token in it. I don't have the word uh, chain in it or block or anything well, like that. You know? Do you think it's a mistake that a lot of these companies that came about in the last uh, five years or so that to, to dedicate themselves so um, specifically to the, the blockchain and the, and the coins and the, because now it, when, when things are tough, they, they might look bad or, Perhaps um, investors might be a little bit scared to associate with them, but maybe if they have a more adaptable name, if the branding is a little bit better, that that could help. Yeah, I think that some of them have done okay with it, but the problem is that it's hard to search for because yeah. some of the uh, and and also uh, people get confused if you're if you only have a passing familiarity with with an industry. Companies with similar names can be easily confused, and then you know they'll some someone will ascribe a capability to a company because yes. it's got a similar name to someone else, and also it kind of anchors you in a, in a way uh, as to you know is this your service? Yeah, you know, and uh, and so you know what what we sought to have was a name that did wouldn't anchor anybody, and then it wouldn't be confused with anybody else's name. Right. And, and if we if we just decided to change, which which we did, because in May of 2018, um, a couple of months after we did our own so-called security token offering, I pivoted the company and I wasn't I didn't have to carry an old thing with me right. that was about what we did before. It worked just as well or just as badly yeah. for the new thing 
as it did for the old thing. And no one, it didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't have any uh, junk in the trunk. Right. And so I, I kind of liked it. Now, I mean, if we were still advertising in the yellow pages or the phone book, Vertala would be the absolutely worst name ever because, you know, <laughs> it would be after triple A tokenization and, you know, and it would be at the very, very bottom of the list. And it still is, but mm. I like the name, uh, you know, it's not easy to pronounce in some languages. If you're, if you're, uh, if your native tongue isn't, uh, you know, Western European, it's not necessarily uh, perfect to pronounce. But hey, um, it's worked for us, and well, so you know, that's our name. I'm sticking with it. Stick with it. But do you think that the folks in charge over at Binance and Coinbase are they going to have a branding issue? Uh, I'm seeing a lot of different perspective nowadays from observers talking about how, well, on one end, a crackdown is a good thing. It adds urgency. On another end, uh, this scrutiny from the SEC, it's it's a, a negative for the industry. What is your take? Well, so I, I well, first of all, I, you know, I, I think that uh, I believe that, um, people should be able to invest in things that they want to invest in. Um, you take a look at Wall Street Bets. You know, Wall Street Bets is out there um, saying whatever it wants. Uh, people are posting there. They're providing advice. Um, people who don't understand the underlying, um, you know, KPIs and metrics and uh, the industry that they're investing in or aping in to uh, public uh, equities and they don't know anything about, you know, how a theater is run nope. or, or what the foot traffic is at a GameStop. They don't know anything about it, but they're, they're getting, they're, they're, they're part of these, you know, pumping schemes and public shares and no one goes after them. And there's substantial risk in buying and selling puts and calls, but, you know, people are out there doing it and they're getting wrecked. Uh, in public markets, or they're making bank, they're doing both. Now, the private markets where we operate, and you know, which is also, you know, crypto is generally a private market, right? Because they're not public equities that have gone through an IPO process. They're all private. They're kind of two sides of a coin, pun intended, right? Mm -hmm. we're, we're on the, you know, Vertal is on the regulated side, and we've always been kind of Boy Scouts in terms of following uh, settled securities law. And everything that we do is informed by one, you know, by our understanding of the of the private uh, and public capital markets and the laws. I've got a former SEC uh, attorney as a co-founder. But, you know, that doesn't mean that I think that the 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 issuers of digital currencies should get slapped or shut down, the buyers understand that there's risk here. This mm -hmm. is actually quite a knowledgeable buyer base, but you know, there's super smart sharks and whales, and then there are less sh uh, sharp, you know, minnows and, you know, folks who are, who are trying to make some money. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think everyone understands that there are risks and to and to into into ascribe ignorance and naivete to investors in uh, cryptocurrencies, D, or even more sophisticated DeFi 
um, uh, products. I, I think that that that's looking down on them. And I think that people should be free to make and lose money as long as no one else is being physically harmed yeah. in, in, in this. And as people make and lose money in the public markets all the time, we don't stop them. And but do you know, you, right. But do you think that the FTX kind of ruined the show? for others in the industry. Like well, I mean, it's not necessarily the problem of making money. It's it's who's in charge of helping people make money and how they're making that money. Well, so the difference in if you're trading, if you're custodying your own digital currencies in your wallet and you know how to operate a wallet and you know how to uh, pledge, uh, you know, into a DeFi borrowing lending pool and, re and receive airdrops and operate Telegram, et cetera, you're pretty sophisticated. Handing your money over to an FTX, on the other hand, that's just, you know, there's probably some fraud there. And that's, you're giving it to a custodian, essentially. Mm -hmm. you're, you're putting it on a, a centralized platform and you're counting on those centralized platforms to abide by their users. FTX is an example of, you know, uh, malfeasance. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I don't need to say anything about FTX. I think there's plenty out that that was uh, that was a scam. And and and, you know, then I don't even consider that blockchain, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, that that is that is just like bucket shop scamming, um, you know, boiler room stuff. Yeah. Coinbase, on the other hand, I, I am very, very confident. And by the way, full disclosure, Coinbase is an investor in Vertala. OK, I, I am. Uh, and as has been for several years, uh, I'm I'm very comfortable with how Coinbase operates. I think they operate uh, as you know very ethic ethically, and um, I, I think that I think that that there should be in order for us to stay at the top of the game in the U.S. We need to have the Coinbases of the world. We need to have the Krakens of the world. You know, we need to have we need to be able to test things like DeFi on smaller, more sophisticated audiences before bringing it to institutions and to larger markets. Just think about all of this as a tournament and, you know, in, in, the, in the good offerings, you know, regardless of how they raise their funds, they're going to do well. And, you know, maybe you don't have, you know, and so I really think that if you're a capitalist, and you believe in you know in freedom of expression that freedom of expression should be to be extended to how you express your in your investments how you how you invest yeah uh, you know and same with your time so I, I i think that this is i think the pendulum is going to swing back it should uh you know they, they need to carve these folks out um and you know bad actors need to be punished but I don't think Coinbase uh, is a bad actor and I don't think Kraken is a bad actor. I don't know. I don't spend a lot of time on Binance, so I don't know much about that. But yeah. like, let's, let's keep some of this in the U.S. But you're a big proponent of institutional DeFi. Um, yeah. Why is that the future of regulated distributed ledger applications? So, um, well, I'm a big I'm, I'm generally a proponent of DeFi like writ large because I think that uh, there's some really great efficiencies. Uh, you know, the, the the borrowing and lending process going through a bank is uh, is very expensive and yeah. time consuming. Holy cow! Uh, is it time? I recently had. To, yeah, it's. Oh yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that, um, you know, I, I, as I see it, and I, I spent a bunch of time in the, in the, you know, in the larger financial uh, institution capital markets. Um, institutional DeFi is a logical next step for large financial institutions. Why is this? Well, um, prop trading of crypto is is very risky. It's a 24-7 kind of thing. Like, you can't take your eye off that ball. Uh, if, if you want to go make your 5 p.m. squash date uh, <laughs> you know, as an investment banker, it, it, it's very hard to take your eyes off like while, while, while stuff is happening. Meanwhile, right. um, you know, uh, custodying crypto is a really, really small market. Uh, there's just not enough handle there to make a lot of fees. It's not nearly as big as traditional custodianship. You know, so that's kind of interesting for large financial institutions, but it's pretty boring. And, you know, and plus that market, you know, got cut by 70%, you right. know. So institutional DeFi gives uh, large financial institutions the, op- the opportunity to use the blockchain um, skills that they developed over the last five, six, seven years and put them into, into and productize that knowledge into a, into um, offerings which are step function improvement on current debt, credit, and collateral markets, and they can cut their internal costs. They can increase speed, and they can they can continue to do things with distributed ledger, which which uh, should turn in ultimately to uh, consumer products. I think you know institutional DeFi is going to start institution institution. And you see that with JPM's Onyx and Broadridge is doing this and, uh, you know, other folks are doing it. But eventually it'll turn into a consumer product um, once they get their, you know, once they once they get stable on it. Yeah. And it's and it's big. It, it, I mean, there's so it's, much collateral out there. Yeah. And it's huge. And, and I'm glad you mentioned JPM because, you know, uh, just last year. They, a person left, a person in charge of Onyx left, and they're just starting to now rebuild that team. And from the average reader, in this case, listener, when you mention JPM, they they, they tend to hop on a lot of new bandwagons. They, They hop on things that are trendy. So whether it was the JPM coin and then there was the metaverse, Mm -hmm. and then now they want to develop their own chat GPT like bot. And it's like, but it's, it's tough to take it seriously. One, when the CEO sort of, uh, there's a lot of vitriol on his part toward the crypto community one. And two, is it just all, Hey, we're ahead of the game, but really it's the startups and the, you know, the tech entrepreneurs that are really making a difference in these big institutions that it's kind of like, they're just going to end up maybe buying the tech at some point later on, or they're not really going to develop anything in house. So you, do you I, agree or no? Uh, well, there's a, there, let me, there's a lot to unpack there. And what you said, let me start from the, let me start from the last part. It's very hard for uh, large institutions to move quickly. And, and, and also large institutions don't tend to build things that, uh, create um, uh, competition in their own business. Okay, this is called the monster versus the baby problem. Okay, <laughs> the, the the monster is the existing revenue stream from the, the revenue producing product that the that the company creates. 
then, you know, the baby is this small startup uh, inside a large corporation, which is creating something which drives less revenue uh, and, uh, and is, is, it will ultimately displace the, um, the legacy product. Um, you know, this Apple went, went through this. The, the iPhone was the baby and the monster was the iPod. Interesting. Okay? And, and they, they were able to do it successfully. It doesn't happen very often, usually fails. Um, the other problem is that um, large institutions, without the entrepreneurial spirit that you have from founders like me and others, to, to go after a problem and think about it every minute of every waking, every waking minute of every day, um, it's hard to get um, salaried employees who have no upside for making something successful to create a, a groundbreaking evolutionary or revolutionary product within a large corporation. There's too many politics and there's too, and, and then there are too many lawyers. Now, I mean, we've got plenty of lawyers here, but we can take risks working with small clients and, and test. And I did that over the last um, four years since we, since we brought the Vertalo's digital asset securities platform to production, I've been able to test with more than a hundred clients and if they failed, that was all right. If we failed, it was all right. It wasn't existential. Right. Big, big institutions, especially regulated big institutions, are, are less able to do this successfully because they're less willing to test on clients or, or work with early adopters. They, they, they want to go into a closet for two years. They want to have outsourced development teams work on it. They've got salaried employees with no upside, and they don't—they're not out there in the market, market testing what they're doing every day. They've got a thesis; they're going to build to it, then they're going to be like, "Voila! Look what we brought to market." That is not um, the recipe for coming up with a um, with a, a great product that's been stress tested. Right. Um, and and a lot of things change from when you wrote that mission statement. And you introduce the product. Sometimes it works. The other thing is, if a large financial institution tried to build something like Vertalo, which is a, a, a digital transfer agent, I mean, I man, literally manage data for issuers and broker dealers, et cetera, their competitor financial institution um, uh, companies won't use it. Citadel tried to do something with broker dealer technology and it failed miserably because no one trusted them. And so no one wants to put their data on another, no financial institution wants to trust a competitor financial institution with their data. So you need an independent third party like a Vertalo that can logically and physically separate data. And so that multiple financial institutions can use the same system to get some stability and some standardization, yet they have control over their data. And right. they, they're not worried about their about data leaks. And so, yeah, can they build it? Yes. Can they test it? Not as well. Will others buy it? Mm, that's That remains to be seen uh, because of uh, trust uh, and security issues. Before we go, I want to talk a little bit about the um, the asset classes yep. that are moving to tokenization. I perused your Twitter a little bit. And uh, you're quite active on Twitter, and you talked a little bit about um, the Andy Warhol pieces of art that have yep. now been tokenized. Yep. I thought that was interesting. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an art guy myself, yep. um, but I don't know how I feel about classic pieces of art. 
being tokenized? How do you win folks like me over? So, um, you know, people, uh, they, they like, they like to be part of something. Okay. People like to join things. They like to be part of community. Um, they, you know, people will, will wear a Yankee hat, Mets hat in my case, or they'll wear a shirt with a brand and, uh, they, 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 they want to be part. People just like to be part of something. Yeah. Um, it's very, very hard to buy a whole Warhol for 99% of people because the cheapest, you know, Andy Warhol portrait, like a Marilyn or something like that, it's like $500,000, $600,000. Sure, you can go buy the poster at the museum and you can put it up on your wall. But what if you could go buy the poster and then own a piece of that poster and uh, and own it? It's not dissimilar from NFTs. The difference is that the... The the um, fractionalized and tokenized versions of Warhols, as issued by Freeport.app, okay, who's our partner here, that is an act. That's actual legal um, uh, um, representation of ownership of an actual Warhol. And if it goes up in price or value, okay, sure, you can sell. But maybe you just want to create a virtual gallery that you can send your friends to and say, here's my art collection. And that's what Freeport's doing. We're also doing it uh, with another group here that I can't disclose, doing it with supercars. Uh, okay. okay. We're, and we're doing it with climate credits. We already do it with racehorses, with my racehorse. So um, with my racehorse, people who have buy, bought fractional interest in racehorses from my racehorse have literally had horses in the Kentucky Derby. And the horse valuations have gone up like this. And so uh, art is uh, art is historically illiquid. Uh, fees for buying and selling art at auction are very high. Um, it's not a market that's easily to en- easy to enter. And um, but, you know, by working with Freeport.app and, and purchasing a fractional ownership of one of these Maryland's or James Dean or uh, yeah. or Mickey Mouse, you can be part of something. And, and, you know, look, you're not there to flip it next week. It's not, it's not crypto like that. It's more like, Hey, I'm going to put 10, a thousand bucks or 2000 or 10,000 bucks. And if this thing goes up, uh, I'll, I'll benefit. And I, but I can sell it at any time, uh, which is hard to do. I just got to say that I think the Maryland went for 195 million. That's the shot one. Okay. Yeah. So there's the shot Maryland, the shot blue Maryland. That's the one where someone came in and tried to assassinate um, uh, Andy Warhol. And it has a gunshot um, hole in it. And so that's a very special one. But he made quite a few Marylands, lots of different versions. And uh, these Marylands are uh, are from the collection of, of a woman named Baby Jane Holzer. And Mm. Baby Jane Holzer was one of the original um, uh, Warhol superstars. She was in some of his films and she was the subject of some of his portraits. And so this is from her personal collection. So the provenance of the Freeport.app Warhols is impeccable. And uh, that they've never been owned by anybody else. And she's got one of the biggest private collections 
And so they're, they're actually super special just on that basis. Wow. Yeah, you're right. The, uh, the blue, the shot sage blue. Yeah. What other industries do you think will gravitate towards tokenization? I mean, so we got horses, we got art, we have, you have, you said you have uh, sports cars, like what else? I think there's going to be in the next couple of years as the pro, as a public markets, you know, as IPOs, that market's all closed. Hmm. Um, the VC equities, specifically LP interest in uh, VC funds, I think is a really ripe market uh, for secondary. And oh, you, uh, because the VCs are not getting exits to distribute games to uh, their limited partners. And so um, imagine, uh, you know, you've, you've been, you invested, you know, 12 years ago into a, uh, as an LP into a, into a VCs fund that that fund hasn't uh, had enough exits, but you know, you want to move on and there's some internal rate of return IRR, that has been, you know, from the markups and the investments in the in the portfolio, you might see uh, VCs getting pressure from their LPs to make them liquid. Well, you can create a liquid market uh, out of uh, LP interest. Mm-hmm. I think debt. Uh, we talked about collateralization earlier. Debt is still one of the most antiquated markets. Debt and credit. I think. Uh, I think that um, real world asset tokenization works really, really well for. Uh, for making debt easier to buy and sell. Uh, you see this with figure doing this with HELOCs. Um, real estate uh, has been reluctant uh, to adopt because it's one of the most most antiquated antediluvian, as they would say, before the flood kind of markets. And it's a really, really fragmented market. But as, um, as their uh, loans come due over the next couple of years, you see this in San Francisco and New York, and their buildings are not recovering post-COVID, they're going to have to sell off some or all of their interest in their buildings, and so if you're a, if you're an owner of one of these large real, uh, commercial real estate, uh, you know office buildings, you know, and you've got to meet your loan requirements, well, sell off some of your equity to investors in order to stave off the collections, so you don't have to turn your keys back while you wait for the return of people to the office. So I think you're going to see that, um, and so any market with Rationalization, okay, or efficiencies uh, can be gained through the use of technology such as digital asset securities and, and tokenization. I think those markets are all ripe, and it's a very large market. It's much larger than the public markets. Last question. I know that you are a lead guitarist in a cover band. I, I was. This thing's killing my playing, man. The guitar <laughs> is right there, though. I mean... You can see it if you look. I would, uh, well, if I was uh, Mark Marin, I would probably have you play. There you go. But uh, I'll save you the trouble. But uh, I'm curious um, if you want to talk to us a little bit about uh, your love for music and uh, for the folks listening who wish to spruce up their playlist this week, what songs does Dave Hendricks recommend for their playlist? Wow. Um, well, so I started playing guitar when I was. 12 years old. I was a music theory uh, student in college along with uh, political science and played in bands starting from when I was 16. And um, before I started this, uh, me and one of, uh, one of 
my team members here uh, played in a band in, in New York and I played, I played Spotify headquarters, played Brooklyn uh-huh. Bowl, Bitter End, a lot of clubs in New York. And, um, you know, my, you know, I, I, I like, I, I really like uh, old, pretty old music. Um, oh, uh, big fan of uh, Jeff Beck. And uh, if, you know, uh, big fan of, of Jimi Hendrix, uh, big fan of John Mayer. Uh, love hippie music like the Grateful Dead. Uh, love love all of that. Um, and it's like, wow, what's a what's a band that that I that I got turned on to in the last year, which is incredible. And that would be the, the Mars Volta. Um, and if you've never heard or seen that band, uh, that's great. And also, I saw Billy Strings. If you like bluegrass. And you like psychedelia, and you like uh, like really really amazing ensemble playing. You've got to check out this guy named Billy Strings. If you say, "Wow, I hate bluegrass," but you love rock and roll, or you love classical music, or you love psychedelia, like Billy Strings, I highly recommend checking out. Dave, this is a great conversation. Uh, when you're in New York, let's meet up at the Bitter End and have a drink and listen to some music. Did you know nearly all stock price changes of 10% or more result from a single news headline? That's right. News headlines have a unique ability to drive stock prices up or down. These news catalysts create trading opportunities every day. All you need is a little help to reach out and take them. And if you're looking to grow your portfolio, it doesn't matter if your investment budget is small or big. An easy-to-read stream of news headlines will increase your opportunities to profit from price changes in the stock market, consolidate a knowledge-based investment strategy, and grow your portfolio. All you need is Benzinga Pro and its powerful news alerts, price tracking, and portfolio monitoring to make a positive change in your trading performance. We've already helped thousands of retail traders across the world, and they could not be happier. Increase your market knowledge, boost your exposure to big movers, and make informed trades before major price changes. The opportunities are all around you. Subscribe now, and we'll skyrocket your portfolio today.